and love and appreciate you all. How is it right this morning? Cool. You're super awake. Um, we're off to a rousing start. Uh, John chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 12 uh, in a moment as we begin to really uh, look at that gospel account and, and celebrate and reflect on the history and hope of Palm Sunday. Uh, but before we do that, um, you know, every, every week uh, I walk in these doors and I see the church and that's you, you're the church. Uh, but, but we come into this place where the church gathers, uh, and I think one of the, um, the fun parts is you see all these beautiful people with smiling faces, uh, and everybody looks happy, uh, and everybody seems happy, and even the people that aren't happy want to seem happy, uh, and sometimes that's us, right? Uh, but look, here, here's the reality. Um, we're all, like all of us, grieving a number of things at a number of times. Um, just, just real um, gut-wrenching, heartache-to-the-core type stuff with our family members, children, friends, our spouse, co-workers. The more relationships we have, quite often, the more suffering we're going to see. Um, there are people that sit in this room that just lost a family member. There are people that sit in this place and have lost a friendship or a relationship. There are people who are dealing with brokenness in myriad ways. Um, and this morning, I, I want us to be really intentional and take some time um, to pray for one another. Um, in, the midst, in the midst of the pain uh, that, that, we, that we deal with in life. Um, Here's the beauty. Here's the gospel. Um, Hebrews would tell us, truly, Christ knows how we feel. We don't have a great high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Knows the depth, knows the pain, yet without sin. Um, I want to take a moment to tell you about a family um, there's a family in our community that lost a child yesterday, uh, and and they're I, they're not. I think they may have visited with us before, um, but but uh, look, the reality is no matter whether they're connected to us, affiliated with us, membership, whatever, they live in our community, and so we're called upon to love them. Our, our church is going to do that, um, but it, it just was a stark reminder to me of just the pain that people are walking through. Um, the pain of losing a child, um, a, a, a tragic and horrible thing, um, and incredibly unexpected. Um, and my heart is just drawn to that family this morning uh, and drawn to you as well. Uh, because I know a number of you, even people I've spoken to within the last week and a half, two weeks, um, you've lost someone. Um, and it's been challenging. Or you're preparing to lose someone, which is awful. Um, how, do, how do we deal with this? How do, how do we grieve well? Uh, the first thing I would tell you is that um, we really want you to be involved in community. We want you to be plugged into community so that you have a group of people around you who can rejoice as you rejoice and weep as you weep, who can be with you and surround you. 
Uh, and then intentionally in corporate worship this morning, uh, just wants to pray together. Uh, some of you will be praying for yourself in this moment as you grieve. Some of you will be praying for somebody else in our congregation that you know they're, they're walking through. Some of you will pray for this family uh, that's in our community. Uh, as a mom, you're going to be praying for that mom. As a dad, you're going to be praying for that dad. As a, as a brother or a sister, you're going to pray for those brothers and sisters this morning and ask God to mercifully give them hope. Um, I'd like to pray this prayer together this morning. Um, so these are always, these can be really challenging uh, because I'll start and then you won't start and then we, it just it gets weird. Uh, but to the best of our ability, I love us in a unified way uh, to pray this together. Heavenly Father, Grant to all who are bereaved the spirit of faith and courage that they may have strength to meet the days to come with steadfastness and patience, not sorrowing as those without hope, but in thankful remembrance of your great goodness and in the joyful expectation of eternal life with those they love. Father of mercies and giver of comfort, Deal graciously, we pray, with all who mourn, that casting their cares on you, they may know the consolation of your love through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. Um, John chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, It's Palm Sunday. Uh, And so one of the things that I love the most about our faith is doing the same thing over and over. Uh, and I mean that very truly, um, not in the sense that, that I like things that are redundant in every area of life, but I do genuinely appreciate the fact that we go to these gospel texts each year, specifically at this time, so that we can remember who Christ is and what he's done for us. Because I don't know if you're like me, but the, the sheep thing kind of sticks, It works for me. When I read the sheep thing in scripture that describes how much of a sheep I am, it resonates because I'm forgetful. And I wonder, this morning, we're going to see hopefully two things uh, from this Palm Sunday text. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Really first, the history of this moment. Because I have read this poorly so many times. I've made a lot of assumptions about things. Um, and, and, and it doesn't really fit what John, the gospel writer, and the, the Holy Spirit's carrying him along to pen these words, and they teach us more than meets the eye. So one, just the history of this moment. The second thing is the hope. This history points to a deep hope, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're able to see. So let's read this together uh, this morning. John chapter 12. Verses 12 through 19. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, Thanks be to God. A couple of things happening, and John's really setting the stage for this moment and giving us some, some deep understanding, we even just within few words. Um, this, so the next day, so he has just, and you can see this from the text, he has just raised Lazarus. His friend has been resurrected to life. And now there are all these crowds, these people that are coming to see Jesus. So there's this large crowd and there's a feast. Now the feast is Passover. Jews are, are making pilgrimages. They're coming to celebrate Passover in, or Passover rather, in Jerusalem. And the crowd is incredibly large. What John's doing in this moment as he writes this is he's helping us understand that this is more than just a big group of people. Because when I think of this large crowd, I, I, think, I think about um, maybe, maybe children's Bibles that have been illustrated that I've seen. I think about maybe some historical maps and documents, and I think about the fact that, well, this society was like, it's agrarian, it's farming, it's probably smaller, less technology, there's not as many people. Um, there would be historical writers like Josephus who would, who would write uh, surrounding and, and describing Passovers of antiquity in these moments, and he would say that there would be upwards of 2 million, 3 million people gathered in Jerusalem around the time of Passover. So in addition to Roman citizens that were, were there and, and Greeks that were there, there is this incredible amount of Jewish people who have come. It's this very large crowd. It's not just relegated to just one type of person. There are all these types of people here, and they're here for the feast of Passover. Here's the next thing. Uh, it says they took palm branches and went out to meet Jesus. They took palm branches. So this is why we call it Palm Sunday. But what are the significance of palm branches? Because the first thing is this. They're not palm branches like you and I see. They're, they're, these aren't Panama City, Destin, uh, you know, Gulf Shores kind of palm branches, all right? These are date palms. So they'd be a little different in character, but they were everywhere around Jerusalem. And God had given his people specific instruction to use palms as a form of praise, to wave palms during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. But there's nothing explicit in Scripture that ties palms to Passover. There's nothing that really connects those two things. So why in the world is this happening? Why are all these people waving palms? Um, there is a brilliant man uh, named D.A. Carson who describes some of the history and the setting behind Israel uh, to help us understand why they would do this because palms had become so much more than just something that was woven or, or waved. I don't know what, what I'm doing here. I don't know tense-wise what this is. Uh, but but uh, the, these palm branches that folks were shaking, all right, uh, during, during the Feast of Tabernacles, it actually had gone beyond that moment, that very ritual, religious moment, something the Lord had commanded them to do, and it had become this national thing. 
this thing not for Israel as the heart of the people, but more so for them as a nation, as a whole. It became a national symbol of sorts. The, the palm branch was emblematic of the nation of Israel. So there were these leaders who protected Israel and those who won battles, like Simon of Maccabees and all these people historically. And when, when they come and return uh, from war or return from a battle victorious, they would have palm branches waved at them as a sign of celebration, as a sign of victory. It was also um, the coins that Israel used. Um, they, they had rebellion. They, they, there were a number of different Israelites who revolted against a Roman order uh, in the first century, and they would print coins to use as money within, within, their, within their economic system as they're rebelling, and all the coins had palms printed on them. It was a picture of who Israel was nationally. So to celebrate uh, victories against other nations, um, but it wasn't associated anymore. This palm branch thing that God said, hey, use this at the Feast of Booths. Use it at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's now kind of been relegated to, it's been, kind of been reduced to, it's been changed to, it's been watered down to this thing that just says, this is a picture of the national hope that we have. So this incredibly spiritual thing has become this very earthly thing, this very temporal thing. Look at what happens next. The people cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, that Hosanna is something that we're familiar with. We, I don't know what Kim Jones uh, and Ben are doing today specifically. Uh, your children are well. Uh, but 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 I I remember growing up as a kid having moments where we would wave palm branches right and say Hosanna, and I didn't know what it meant. And guess what? I really didn't know what it meant till I was an adult, like kind of recent adult. Shame to say a little bit. But you know what that word Hosanna means? It means give salvation now. It means save us now. So the people, those people that are Jews are crying out to Jesus as he comes and saying, save us now. And this is very normal. This would be something that is actually a cry of praise and a prayer that comes from this very specific portion of Scripture that was read at lots of feasts and prayed in lots of mornings surrounding things like the, the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover uh, from this passage of Scripture called the Halal. It's in Psalm 113 to 118, and we're going to read this morning from 118 verses 25 and 26, and you're going to see the connection and how in John's Gospel and the, and the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well echo these words. It says this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. Um, this prayer is being sung as it would be sung in mornings during the Passover. So there would typically be men and boys who would wave their palm branches. And, and so much so that that became so synonymous with this cry, this prayer, this song of Hosanna, that actually the palm branches ended up being called Hosannas because they were just one and the same. They were so uniquely tied together. In this passage, we see the Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. 
Save us now. Give salvation now. And then you see in the next portion, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So that save us, we pray, O Lord, is something really powerful. I don't want to rush to the end, but John's doing something incredible as he mentions this word, this Hosanna in this specific moment, because Jesus has a Hosanna of his own that's coming in John chapter 12. Um, Here's the next thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And here's the amazing thing about how you read this. You see people effectually blessing Jesus's name, blessing the name of the Lord. So I read this, and I had read this, and I've read this so many times, and I felt like we're in a pretty good spot here. Truly. Like, we're waving palm branches at Jesus. This is celebratory. We're blessing his name. How bad can this be? Our people, I think they're getting it. These guys are getting it. They understand who Jesus is. Do you know one of the most challenging things about reading this passage, if we don't know the history and the context behind it, is that we'll miss this. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord became a very customary greeting in Jewish time. So this is effectually the same as me saying, hey, we're blessed because you came to visit us today. We're so glad you came over today. You really blessed our family. And that can be heartfelt and true, But we're talking about the Son of God here. And it looks like, it seems like this crowd is saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this greeting has been watered down. This blessing ultimately has been turned into a greeting. We've taken something that was was meant to be incredibly deeply profound and spiritual. And now it's just kind of cultural and customary. So this is really the second indication that that John gives in his gospel that things are not what they seem. People are praising, but it's out of a praise. and We're waving branches out of a desire for a national hope, for an earthly hope. They're pronouncing what seems to be blessings, but ultimately it's a customary greeting It's something that culturally would have been said to any kind of dignitary, any kind of person of power or of influence that would have come. And we even get stronger indication that that's the case because then these words are used, even the king of Israel. Now, one thing that you notice, as I do, is that when we looked at the halal and we looked at that specific portion in Psalm 118, we didn't see that in there. That was not a part of that text. So what's happening here is we're getting further picture of these people that are longing to be freed from a national standpoint. They want to be freed from a human standpoint. They want political freedom from the Roman bondage and and, and tyranny that they're under. They're living in a world of Roman oppression. They want freedom from that. And all of these things that are deeply, uniquely spiritual about who they're meant to be in their relationship to God have been watered down to just save us from this moment. And then it starts getting strange. Because in verse 14, you see 
the way that Jesus enters. Now, I would imagine in your Bible, it probably says up above John chapter 12, the triumphal entry. But as you read this, as you see, this doesn't look very triumphant at all. Because Jesus rides in on a young donkey. And there's deep significance and there's deep meaning here historically for this moment and the way this is tied to the prophecy of the Old Testament. What Jesus is doing is not happenstance. It's not, well, I'll get the young donkey because we didn't have any, you know, astounding like kingly horses available. There's deep intentionality here in what's happening in this moment. Because a kingly entry would have been appropriate for Jesus. The kind of entry we see in Revelation. The white horse. Something that would proclaim that there is authority and dominion and there's power in Jesus. Something that would would produce in the minds of the people that he saw, all of these people that are gathered, that he is the one who deserves to be worshipped. That he is the one who deserves praise. And not just in an earthly way, like one would praise a Caesar or a king, but instead, one who is in fact the God of all creation. And instead of coming in on a horse like that, a horse that says that, he comes in on a donkey. And John, like the other gospel writers, will point to this passage in Zechariah, this prophecy. It tells of the one who is to come. So this is Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You see those verses, that same, that same language is in the passage. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, the place in which Jesus is. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. It's the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Incredible things are happening in this moment. This is clearly an echo of this passage. There are also some things uh, that John does that that can echo uh, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9 as well. And what's happening in this moment is he's drawing his readers and hearers into this place where they see that Jesus is truly fulfilling the law and the prophets. Because I think we use that language a lot. Especially in our world, and we, we would say that as a phrase that we know, that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. But then I think quite often we'd have a real struggle in figuring out how. How do, we, how do we reveal that? How do we see that? How do we see that Jesus is who he says he is and who he, how that he was to be this one that the Old Testament foretells? Well, here is the picture of it. Three very specific things uh, come from this passage. And this passage in Zechariah reveals what's happening in this moment. One is, uh, and these are from people smarter than me. This is not me. This is Carson. Um, This is 
This is happening in the Zechariah passage, three specific things. One is the end of war. In verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. So Jesus rides in on a donkey, the foal, the colt of a young donkey, and makes no mistake. He leaves it not to the imagination that he brings war. In fact, what he's doing is so antithetical, it's so opposite, it's so backwards that it can't be mistaken for war because what he's doing, in fact, is hilarious. I mean, truly. I mean, now I would say that he's a clown in a parade. This one who has performed, he's raised the dead, and now he rides in on not donkey, but like my Millie's donkey, like the child-sized donkey, the kid-sized donkey. This is mini donkey, a miniature donkey. All right? It's a signal, it's a picture of the end of war. Here's the second thing. It's also the coming of peace. Look at that verse in verse 10 in Zechariah. He shall speak peace to the nations. Because the challenging thing about, I think, maybe the way we think in the Western world, and I think a lot of us tend to think, is that peace is the absence of war. That's not peace. That's just kind of homeostasis. Peace is where there's true reconciliation, where there's true restoration, where there's true love and care and connection to God the Father himself. So this signals not only the end of war, but the coming of peace. And then that Zechariah passage in verse 11 says, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is a picture of the blood that is to be spilled. This is a picture of the crucifixion that is to come. So in this moment, John is helping his readers. As he writes this gospel, he's helping us understand that Jesus, in this moment, is doing something incredibly majestic and powerful, despite how unassuming and strange it looks. He's bringing an end to war. He's ushering in peace. And that will come through the blood that is spilled. All right. The next thing is this. Look at verse 16. And you see this. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So... I love that John spoils this story in the middle of the story. We've got nine more chapters to go. And he's saying, hey, all these things that they're eyewitnesses to, that they're seeing, that are happening, that are taking place in this moment, they don't understand them. And guess what? They're not going to understand this until it's all over. They don't get it. They don't see it. These are people who have walked with Jesus, who have seen Jesus. Now, Jesus has picked up a ton of folks in the last day as they've heard of him raising Lazarus. There's tons of people that have come. But they've seen the miracles. They've seen the signs. They've seen the healings from the beginning. And John tells us that they didn't understand this moment. That ought to give us a reality check and an understanding of the fact that these crowds, all these people that come to praise Jesus, that this praise is, in fact, cultural 
and nationalistic and watered down, and it's not out of a recognition for who he is. Because even in this moment, his very own disciples don't understand who he is. Now the crowd, look in verse 17, that's been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. So all the people that saw him or heard of him raised Lazarus, they're with him, they're following him. But then in verse 18, John really starts to wrap this up and gives us some pretty clear indication as to why all of these things are taking place. Why all of these things are happening. Look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Everybody's amazed at things that are amazing. All of us are. We're drawn to it. We, we, we can't help but be focused upon it and attracted to it and drawn to that which is incredible. And as we read this Palm Sunday passage, I want to see, I want us to see together historically what's happening in this moment and how a group of people is utterly amazed at that which is so far beyond them they can't even comprehend. And yet they're still so focused on themselves. That even his disciples don't understand. Do you remember in Mark chapter 8, do you remember Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ? Jesus is with his disciples. They're on the way to Caesarea Philippi. And he says to them, who do people say that I am? And what do his disciples tell him? They say, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others, a prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? And it's one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. Because Peter looks at Jesus and he says, you're the Messiah. And he, then he says, this is, you have the words of life. To whom else can I go? I can't go anywhere away from you. You are everything. And in the next moment, in the very next moment, Jesus begins to foretell, he begins to describe his suffering and his crucifixion. And Peter stops him. He attempts to rebuke the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm not playing that game. Right? I got a lot of sin, but I'm not going to try not to have that one. Look, he tries to tell Jesus, it can't be this way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Is he telling Peter that he's the devil? No, what he's doing is saying, you think in the ways of man, not of God. And this is God's way. And his disciples even don't see him doing it. They don't get it. They can't put it together. And then we get a look into the heart of this other group of people that's there in verse 19. This group called the Pharisees, the religious elite, the people who are the Jews of all Jews, who keep the law. 
who know the law. And the hard part about this is that they're intricately affiliated and connected to every aspect of religious life. They can keep the law of the law in so many ways, the letter of the law, but they don't know its heart. They don't know its spirit. And in this moment, as you've seen throughout every gospel account you've ever read where Jesus deals with the Pharisees, they're constantly trying to do what? Trap him. Trick him. Convince the people that his miracles, that the things that he are doing, that these things aren't from the Lord, that they're a sham. That's what the Pharisees are continually trying to do. They're continually trying to discredit Jesus because they do not see him as the Messiah. Look into verse 19 and see what it says. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, something really powerful is happening in this moment. First, the history. And it's the Pharisees see in this moment that the crowd is clamoring to be near, to be close to see, to experience on some level, Jesus. They recognize, they're telling one another, we're gaining nothing. Everything that we're trying to do isn't working. People are still flocking to him. There are crowds coming to him. Jesus is the attraction of Passover in this moment. Truly. Everyone is drawn to him, and they can't stand it. They say to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. And then John uses this last sentence in verse 19 to say a million things. He says, look, the world has gone after him. So all of this to this point is the history of this moment. And in this last line, I want, to sh- I want you to see, I want all of us to experience the hope of the gospel of Palm Sunday. Because when John describes the world that's gone after him, I initially read that and think, this is amazing. The whole world is going after Jesus. Looks like a good thing on the surface, right? But now that we've talked through some of the historical elements of the fact that, look, Ultimately, some of the praise and the things that we're doing, these are, these are watered down. They're national type things. They're earthly hopes. They're not really spiritual trust in Jesus. I'm a little more skeptical than I was when I started, right? But we even want to cling to, I think, in our humanity and our brokenness and our desire to be righteous in and of ourselves, we want to say, like, look, the world's going after him. They see it. They get it. When John uses this word world, it's not the first time he's done it in his gospel. Two very specific instances where he uses this exact same word, cosmos. One is, is, in, is in chapter 1, verse 9. The world did not know him. The other is in John chapter 3. In a verse you're very familiar with, it's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. What does world mean? Because I think when you and I think of world, we think of it just like everybody. Like that's, people live in the world, so if we're going to say world, that means everybody. And that's not wrong. But there's more. Because when John is using this word, 
he's using it really kind of in tension with this idea of this great crowd of all the people that are there. Because what he's saying is this world is not just everybody or all y'all, right, as we would say. But this world is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and race and every ethnicity and every background and, and, and every type of family of origin and family history and every place that, that, is, that is poor or marginalized or wealthy or benefited. Any, all of these things are thrown together because when John says world, he's talking about that kind of world. Not just an everybody world, but a very specific kind of everybody world. And that's just the first part of it. The other part of it is this. That very large crowd and specific group of people is actually one that is lost and in rebellion against God. Because here's what you need to understand about John 3.16. And that this is the hope of the gospel and the power. It's not just so that for God so loved the everybody. Or for God so loved all y'all. It's this. God so loved all of you. All of us. From wherever we've come from. And whatever our life looks like. And whatever we've done. Or whatever we will do. God loves us, and all of y'all are lost and rebelling against God. Those are the people he loves. Do you understand that? Do you see that? And it's this world that John says that's after him. It's this kind of world that's after him. It's a lost, rebellious world of all these different types of people. Everybody that's ever been lost and rebelling against the Lord there after him. So what does that mean? How do we see this play out? Look into John chapter 12, verses 27 through 37, and we'll see. This is Jesus, and he says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and I'll glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. A couple of things John's doing here that are really incredible. The first is this, Jesus prays and he says, and what shall I say, Father, save me From this hour. Do you know what those words are? What Jesus is doing there in that moment? 
He's saying, what should I say? Should I say, give salvation now? Should I say, save me now? Jesus is saying, should I cry Hosanna? You see the power in that? Because the people want this immediate, safe, comfortable, politically peaceful, in their mind, earthly life. And so they say, save us now. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you much, much more. Jesus will do what the writer of Hebrew calls saving us to our uttermost. Because Jesus would say in verse 30, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. The crowds are crying out Hosanna for a moment. But what those that are speaking to Jesus are saying, but the Christ must remain forever. They don't understand that he will. It's through his life, death, and resurrection that he will be forever. He always has and always will be. He becomes the Hosanna that they need much more than the one that they want. And he's done that for you, and he's done that for me. This is the hope of Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry that doesn't look triumphant at all, reveals to us really who we are. We're people who are focused on ourselves. And we make devotion to God, not about him, but about us and our righteousness. We're the world that's gone after him, but this is how we've gone after him. We've rebelled. We've attacked. We've actually gone after Jesus. Not in pursuit, but in ways to punish and ways to say, no, I don't have to live this way. I can do what I want. I know what's best for me. I know what life should look like. I know how life should be. And we're lost. And we rebel. That's the kind of world that we are. This unassuming triumphal entry shows us the grace that's undeserved. We don't deserve this grace. Everything about this is upside down. Do you see that? The one who created the world and every war horse rides in on a donkey. People are are seemingly praising him and he knows, he sees, he understands that they don't see. Do you know why? Because those people that are his brothers, his dearest friends, they don't get it either. Jesus comes to a world that has gone after him in all the wrong ways. A world that that could not be righteous. A world that rebelled. Do you know what Palm Sunday is? It's a picture 
ultimately not of the world going after Jesus, but Jesus coming after the world. It's Jesus coming after you. It's Jesus coming after me. Pursuing us. Coming to us in our rebellion and our false piety and all these things that where we like to show that we're religious and ultimately we just want the thing that benefits us. Jesus comes and suffers and dies so that we can have life with him. It's the great irony of this passage. Ultimately, this is what John's saying. This world could never pursue Jesus. And yet in the Father's wisdom, Jesus and his great love will pursue this world. To bring not just an end to war, but peace, real reconciliation, restored relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It looks really unassuming. I look at this story, and it just seems like this kind of like, this stuff is happening. I don't understand all this stuff, and it seems random. But it's deeply intentional. This is the way that the Lord has come for us. And that's what we celebrate today. Uh, and today is a super fun day because we're going to celebrate it. Um, today, a lot of us will hear, uh, hear something on TV. We'll hear this guy named Jim Nance that we all love say a tradition unlike any other. All right? Um, not nearly as cool as what we're going to do in the next couple moments. Um, we've got two young men uh, that are coming uh, to be baptized today. Uh, and man, I could go on and on and on about my love for these families uh, and, and just who they are and, and our church. Uh, but I want to take a time now as our worship team comes uh, to, to step back here and prepare for baptism uh, with the Deloach family uh, as Canada is preparing to be baptized and the Carlisto family uh, as John Ezra is preparing to be baptized. Uh, so if you guys will come and join me now, um, Paxton's going to lead us in worship. And hey, Richard, I would just ask if you and Joe don't mind uh, coming down to just receive anyone uh, that needs prayer uh, or, or wants to talk during this moment. Um, man, this song, uh, look, Paxton will set it up better than I can, but he'll tell you why. Uh, it's pertinent that we sing this this morning. It'll be a joyous time together. Uh, and look, pray for these families as, as, as we walk toward this incredible moment where we get to see uh, these two children buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. <laughs>